Welcome to Good Girls Talk About Sex. I'm sex educator and sexual communication coach, Leah Carey, and this is a place to share conversations with all sorts of women about their experience of sexuality. These are unfiltered conversations between adult women talking about sex. If anything about the previous sentence offends you, turn back now. And if you're looking for a trigger warning, you're not going to get it from me. I believe that you are stronger than the trauma you have experienced. I have faith in your ability to deal with things that upset you. Sound good? Let's start the show. Hey, friends. In the episode two weeks ago, we visited with Lynn, a woman who has found sexual healing through visiting a sex worker. This week, we speak with a full-service sex worker who's been on the other side of that interaction. And for the record, this is not the same sex worker that Lynn has worked with. Jocelyn began her time as a sex worker when she was in a difficult financial situation. Over the years, she has done some escorting, some dominatrix work, worked in a massage parlor, and now is a sexual surrogate specializing in people with disabilities. And I want to tell you a lot more than that because I want you to hear it all from her. There is one important note about sex work in the legal systems of the United States and Canada. This was recorded in 2019 and is being released in 2020. The laws in the United States around sex work vary depending on jurisdiction, but it is illegal in most parts of the U.S. At the time that this is being released, there are numerous moves to decriminalize sex work around the country, while at the same time, there are laws put in place in the last couple years that are purportedly meant to minimize sex trafficking, but do little to end that scourge, while also making life significantly more difficult and dangerous for consensual sex workers. And all of that is to preface the fact that Jocelyn lives and works in British Columbia, Canada, where the laws around sex work are different. As she mentions in the second half of this interview, Canada now operates under the Nordic model, which makes the selling of sexual services legal, but the purchasing of sexual services illegal. You might hear that description and think it's a reasonable compromise. Criminalize the Johns, but don't punish the sex workers. It's actually far more complicated than that, because you cannot criminalize one half of a transaction without significantly impacting the other half of the transaction. I'll put some links to articles in the show notes on both the United States and Canadian systems for those of you who would like to dive a little deeper into this fascinating and infuriating rabbit hole. And if you live in a country outside of North America and want to dive into the rules in your own part of the world, I'd love to hear what you learn. Okay, so now let's get into the interview. Jocelyn is a 37-year-old cisgender female who describes herself as white, pansexual, polyamorous, single and dating, and Canadian. She grew up in a Protestant Christian home, and she describes her body as athletic with curves. I am so pleased to introduce Jocelyn. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited to talk to you, Jocelyn. So we met last weekend. We're recording this in December. We met last weekend at a class and we just had like an immediate sisterhood. And I'm so excited to talk to you today. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Thanks for being here. So um I have a feeling that this conversation is going to dip into a lot of different areas um, mm-hmm. and is probably going to run a lot longer than most. So <laughs> let's dive right in. <laughs> let's do it. All right. So let's start where we start all of my conversations. What is your first memory of sexual pleasure? 
Ooh. Um, the first thing that comes to mind, I think, is my first kiss. It was when I was in daycare because I was raised Ooh. by a single mother. And so we used to have to go to after school daycare. And there was a boy there named Corey and he was super cute and we were just so in love and we used to come up with excuses to like go they had back in those days there was only one computer um, that we had to get permission to go play like video games on or whatever and it was in the office and so we would go and like play video games on the computer but really we were just like making out and (laughs) how old were you Oh my gosh. I was, I've been trying to remember. Um, I don't really know how old I would have been like grade six, maybe. Okay. Like, yeah. And we were, we were definitely like kissing, not like grade sixes. Like, I don't know how (laughs) we learned how to do that, but, uh, you know, and like, we were just, we were just enamored with each other and we actually made up a code word instead of saying, I love you. We would say, I penguin you, so that like none of the teachers would know what we were saying, so we wouldn't get in trouble and stuff. And then I remember one time, we just couldn't help it. We were in the hallway, and we were going to kiss, and a teacher came out, or like a supervisor person came out. And so we kind of like... We're really close and about to kiss. And then we both pulled away really quickly. (laughs) And then the teacher was like, "Uh, what the heck? And then, you know, that was the end of that. We were not allowed to go to the computer room alone anymore. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. And so how far did your making out go at that point? Was it just kissing? Was there touching? Uh, No, it was just kissing as far as I remember. Yeah. And did that bring up like all those pleasurable hormones that you would associate now? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. As far as I remember, it was pretty, there wasn't a lot of tongue, I don't think. Like it was just a lot of open mouthed kissing from mm-hmm. what I remember. What were you hearing in your childhood home? You said you were raised by a single mom. Yeah. What were you hearing about sex or sexuality or even kissing at home? Uh, nothing. Mm. Nothing. There was no talk about um, bodies or intimacy or sexuality. I never got a sex talk. I was not close to my mom growing up either. I was a pretty ragey kid. So um, I remember when I finally got my period, I didn't tell my mom. I kept Mm -hmm. it from her. And when she found that out, I remember we were having an argument about something and I knew it was going to hurt her that I'd kept it from her. And so I threw it in her face and she, and it, it did hurt her very much because she wanted to take me out to dinner and do this whole like welcome to womanhood. I know looking back as a, as a parent now and as an adult, I'm like, Oh, I was such a little asshole. Like, (laughs) you know, that was so sweet of my mom to want to do that. And she was, she was crushed that like she missed it and she Mm -hmm. didn't get to like do her little womanhood Uh, inauguration with me and stuff. So there was no talk about kissing or sexuality or anything like that. And my mom didn't date at all either while she was raising us. So we didn't see a lot of PDA or anything like Mm -hmm. that. My grandparents used to hold hands a lot. I remember like when they were driving in the car, they would always hold hands. And I always thought that was really sweet. But that was about the extent of it. I never saw any of my aunts and uncles doing like hugs and kisses. Um, None of that. There was none of that. I was going to ask you about whether your mom dated. And I wonder now as a single mom, how do you feel about the fact that your mom didn't, that you didn't see her dating? Like how does, how do you feel that as a mom yourself now? Um, I think I respect her choice. Um, I, cause she put the three of us first and like my brothers had a really difficult time going through the divorce for many years after that. So they were in a very sensitive place. And I think if she was introducing other men into our lives, it would have been 10 times harder. And so I respect the choice that she made. I don't know how she went 18 years without like... Wanting to be with a man, I mean, I think that that's like martyr territory. Yeah. Um, and so, 
I kind of feel sorry for her in a way because I feel like she denied herself for a really long time. And then like after we all moved out and she finally started dating, we kind of all had to give her that nudge. Like, Hey mom, it's okay now. Mm. Like live your life, like do your thing, like find your, find your partner, you know? So, um, yeah, I think I think I respect her choice for sure cuz she was 100% focused on us kids mm-hmm. and um we needed the support cuz we weren't getting it from my father by any means. Did you have a relationship with your dad? Yes, but it was very unhealthy and toxic. Mm. Um he was abusive. When you say abuse, do you mean emotional, physical, sexual, all of the above? Mm. So yeah. did you experience sexual abuse? I did. Yeah. My brothers didn't. Um, they only ever experienced emotional and physical abuse. Mm-hmm. I say only like, yeah. that's, it's, it's not any better. And I got the brunt of the emotional and the sexual abuse. Yeah. I'm so sorry. Yeah. How long did it go on for? I don't know how to answer that. Honestly, um, because uh, it happened in my sleep and it didn't start happening until after my parents split up. Have you ever had a conversation with him about the abuse? Yes, I confronted him uh, in my early 20s about it in a public place and it went very badly. (laughs) And um, he, uh, yeah, he called me a liar. He said, my mom put these ideas in my head. he and then he basically said, you know, like all of my life choices are my own and called me names and, you know, and it, it was very terrible. It was horrible. That conversation with my dad went almost exactly the same way. Oh, sheesh. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm not a pedophile. And I was like, no one's calling you a pedophile. Yeah. Like, that's not what this conversation is. So you mentioned that you came from a really religious community. Um, mm-hmm. So how how did religion impact your view of sex and sexuality? Ooh, well, I was taught that we're not supposed to have sex until we get married. Ooh. Of course, like many of us were. I didn't try masturbating until I was probably, I want to say maybe grade seven or eight. Mm-hmm. So that kind of like self-pleasuring needed to happen in secret, you know, and it definitely, I never shared that. Like we didn't talk about it. So there was definitely like a shame around pleasure, I feel like, or sex and bodies in general. That was just sort of unspoken. Mm -hmm. Did you feel guilty when you were kissing boys? No. No. (laughs) I didn't. Ironically, no. (laughs) I did not. (laughs) Um, Although I got to say, I I didn't really struggle with guilt at all until I became a mother. Were you getting any kind of sex ed in school? Like, where were you learning about sex, if anywhere? Nowhere. Movies. Yeah. I remember um, I was in French immersion. So we had this like French dictionary in our class and in the middle it was a huge huge like encyclopedia and in the middle of it there were some color photographs and one of them had a naked man and a naked woman with all of their body parts listed Mm -hmm. and we loved looking at that little book like we would always go and sneak the that encyclopedia and open it up and like ooh ooh oogle the the naked man and the naked woman because it was so taboo. It was so taboo. Mm-hmm. There was no sex ed. I, I, this, the, I remember like in my health class in like grade seven, like the equivalent of the, of the sex ed we got was like talking about how to shave our legs properly. <gasps> what? Yeah. Like I do not remember any like, and we talked probably about menstruation and periods mm-hmm. and like how to ha- like hygiene around that. But in terms of like actual sexuality, I don't remember anything. If they did teach it to us, I don't remember it. Mm -hmm. So either they glossed over it really quickly or I blocked it out. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) So you're getting your information from movies and TV. 
pretty much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or like other friends. Uh-huh. Right. Which are always a really good source of information. Oh, yeah. Super <laughs> accurate. <laughs> not so much yeah (laughs) so when did you start dating my first like serious boyfriend I think was in grade 10 Ryan what a babe (laughs) such a babe and so we fooled around a little bit there was some more making out and groping and stuff in that relationship and then I broke up with him because I just felt like I wasn't really in it and I didn't feel like it was fair to him. Were you experiencing pleasure during that making out and groping? Like when you say you weren't in it, do you mean uh, you weren't enjoying the relationship? You weren't enjoying the in- the physical interaction? I just, I think I felt like, uh, yeah, like I was dating him for the sake of having a boyfriend. Uh-huh. I mean, did I experience pleasure? Sure. But I feel like, During those times, I was so self-conscious. I was more concerned with if I looked skinny Mm. uh, and if I looked good and like um, if I was doing things right and if it felt good for him. Like I was way too in my head to really have been present enough to be experiencing the pleasure. Like, sure, was was it fun to kiss him? Like, yeah, did I like that? Sure. But I don't remember feeling like any massive waves of, of erotic pleasure at all. That is like a perfect description. I, I talk a lot about performing pleasure. And what you just said was a perfect description of that. When we're yeah. so focused on how we look and how we sound and are we doing it right, there is no space left for us to really feel what's going on in our bodies. Mm-hmm. We're just doing it for the sake of the other person and, and worrying about whether we're doing it right or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Totally. Totally. So when did you decide that you were ready to have sex? Before we go any further, I want to break in quickly and let you know that there's a lot more to the answer to this question. You're about to hear from Joss about her first consensual sexual experience. But before that, she had a non-consensual experience where she said yes to oral sex, but did not consent to penetrative sex. If you've been listening for a while, you know I don't do trigger warnings because I believe that you're stronger than the trauma you've experienced. However, I also believe there's a line between what's appropriate to share in a general public space and what needs to be opted into with prior consent. Joss's story from that night includes blood in a way that I think you should be prepared for. Therefore, I'm making this audio available at Patreon, not because you need to pay for it, but because I want you to knowingly opt in to hearing about it. Josh shares how she initially gave consent, how it rapidly turned non-consensual, the processing she has done in the intervening years, and the feelings she now has about the man who violated her consent. Also at Patreon... Jocelyn and I talk about whether the reported statistics for childhood abuse of boys are far too low, how she separates her personal sexuality from her work sexuality, how she talks with her son about sex, and as usual, the extended lowdown Q&A. Audio extras are free for all at patreon.com, regardless of whether you're a financial contributor. If you have a few dollars to pledge in support of my work each month, I will gratefully accept. But if you don't, I completely understand and honor you for taking care of yourself. Remember, you can access the audio extras at patreon.com forward slash good girls talk about sex. Now use the link in the app you're listening on now, because since my material is marked as age 18 plus, you can't search for it inside Patreon using my name or the show name. Once you're there, create a Patreon login and follow my account to get updates when I post new audio extras. And if you're a financial contributor, you'll get a special RSS feed in your account so the audio extras show up automatically in your podcast app. 
So all of that information and audio is at patreon.com forward slash good girls talk about sex. And please remember, if your finances are tight, I get it. If you still want to support the show, please tell a friend to listen. You could even organize an online listening party with some of your besties. Use this show as a jumping off point to deepen your own conversations around intimacy and sex. Okay, now let's get back to Joss telling us the story of her first consensual sexual experience. Let's talk about your first, hopefully, consensual experience. (laughs) Yes, very consensual. His name was Nathan. And we decided very much together to, to take that leap. And so, in a way, it kind of... I I was sort of grateful for the fact that my cherry had been popped, if I'm doing the quotation marks for people (laughs) listening right now, because it it made the first time with my boyfriend who I actually loved and who loved me a lot easier. It was still uncomfortable, but um, it was definitely a lot easier and less messy because I'd gone through that experience previously. So I was 17 when... Uh, I consciously and consensually decided to start having sex with my long-term boyfriend and it was lovely. Mm. It was great. He was very emotionally in tune with me and um, he, he never pressured me to do anything I didn't want to do. And so that opened the whole world of sexuality up for me to experiment. I do feel like I got to, I got a more well-rounded sexual experience because I was with one person that I trusted. And so we got to try lots of different things together really safely. And I feel like I got more sexual experience than if I would have just been having sex with Mm -hmm. a bunch of different people. When you say that you got to try a lot of things, what does that include? What kinds of stuff? We just tried different positions or different places to have sex, different toys, um, different ways of of touching each other, different ways of uh, revving each other up and different foreplay. Um, We got pretty creative with with those things for for being pretty newbies with with (laughs) sexuality, you know? So, So, yeah, I feel like it was a good experience. I'm, I'm happy with the way that, that all of that happened for sure. Yeah. Oh, and all, you would ask me about an abortion as well. So let's touch oh, on right. that. Yeah. I got pregnant with him and I was 17 when I got pregnant and I didn't realize that that's what was happening either. So I was pregnant for three, three, almost four months before I realized mm. that I was pregnant and that's what was going on with me. And so luckily I turned 18 during that time. So I was able to sign myself, you know, give myself permission to have an abortion because otherwise Mm -hmm. I would have needed parental consent, which would not have gone over well at all. So it's perfect that I ended up being able to do that for myself. I don't regret it at all. It was the right decision for me to make at the time. I was not ready to have a child and especially not with that person and my life would be completely, completely different than it is now if I would have walked down that path. I never felt remorse. I never felt guilt about it because I knew it was the right decision for me mm-hmm. at the time. So um, it wasn't an easy thing to go through, but it was an easy decision for me to make. And then I ended up having an affair. And mm-hmm. so that was the first time I ever cheated on a partner. And there was this, there was a beautiful, beautiful man who ended up coming to work for me. And he was one of the most beautiful men I think I've still ever seen to this day. <laughs> and he, I'm not going to use his name because I'm going to get some kind of personal here, yeah. but he, um, I ended up having an affair with him and, and he had a very small penis. And I remember when I discovered that I felt so ripped off. (laughs) I felt, I felt cheated because I was like this beautiful man and has this like little tiny penis. Like, how is this fair? And then I also really quickly realized that he'd only ever had one night stands because he was so self-conscious about his, the size of his penis as well. Mm. And so he was very, um, inexperienced with how to pleasure me 
Mm-hmm. And also he was very um, unexpressive while we were having sex, which was very difficult for me because I wasn't used to that. So, you know, I, I, I said to him at one point, like, you have this deadpan expression on your face when we're having sex. And it's like, it's hard for me to read what's going on for you. Like, are you liking this? Or are you not liking this? Is it working for you? Like, I don't even know when you finish. Like, mm-hmm. you're so deadpan, nonchalant. Like, it, it's it's weird for me. And he didn't really know how to react to that when I said it to him. But I was like, I need you to give me more. Like, mm-hmm. I don't really, I don't really know how this is going to work otherwise. And that's when he kind of shared with me he'd never really been in it. Like, I was the I was the first woman he'd been with consecutively for. X amount of time, like I forget how many months that we were together, but he'd never had a relationship like that before because he'd only ever done the one night stand thing. And I was like, oh, okay, this is all making a lot more sense now. We rarely in this culture have conversations about men with small penises. Mm-hmm. It is a like sex is a taboo subject. And then there's a whole bunch of things that are specifics that are even more taboo. And then that's like the ultimate taboo. Yes. So let's talk about it. This is not necessarily unusual, nor is it anything to be ashamed of because it's your body in the same way that some women have small breasts and some women have large breasts. Totally. So what was your experience with him? Did he learn how to use his penis? Did he learn how to use other parts of his body, like his fingers and his tongue Mm -hmm. um, to pleasure you? Yes, definitely. So because I brought that conversation up, like I made him talk about it with me, things got better for sure. He definitely improved. And I'm like, I felt very satisfied with him because I, well, I also, I was, I really liked him a lot. So Mm -hmm. I think it's a lot easier to, um, to derive pleasure from a partner when you really enjoy them as a person too. Sure. So yeah, he definitely improved his, his skills improved, but I will say I thought I was having orgasms, but I was not because I didn't have a true orgasm until I moved to BC, British Columbia, for those of you who are not familiar with (laughs) our provincial short, short terms. Um, and yeah, I was, I remember, I will never forget the day that I had my first true orgasm. All right, let's do it. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Yeah. I remember exactly what the walls looked like and where I was (laughs) and like everything. Um, because, oh my God, it was amazing. So I was with a long-term partner at the time as well. He's uh, my boyfriend and we, he was a horn dog. He had never been sexual with a woman before me. And so we were like little rabbits for sure. How old were you at this point? Early twenties. And mm-hmm. um, yeah. And we, we had a lot of sex, a lot, a lot of sex. Um, and we were in my room and he was laying down and I was on top of him And there was just this, all of a sudden, now I know he hit my G spot, but at the time I didn't know that's what was going on. And so all of a sudden he just hit this spot and I was like, oh my God, don't move. Like, don't move. Like stay exactly there, you know? (laughs) And, uh, and he was like, okay, okay. And he was so good about like following directions and he just kept going and that position just took me over the edge and I had, and I had the most intense G spot orgasm and I was squirting everywhere Oh wow! and I couldn't stop laughing afterwards. I was laughing for like probably five minutes straight. Like I just could not stop laughing. And I was like, Oh my God, this is amazing. This is amazing. And then I had the like perma smile on my face for like three days afterwards, like the cliche you see in like the movies, <laughs> you know? And I was like, Oh my God, that's like, this is a real thing. Are you aching to explore new vistas of your sexuality? Do you hear me talk about concepts on this show and think, it makes sense, but I need help applying it to my situation? That's where personalized sex and intimacy coaching comes in. When you work with me, I promise to help you feel safe exploring your sexuality. Together, we'll look at your needs and desires without judgment 
and help you figure out how to fulfill them. There's no single answer that's right for everyone. So I'm going to help you discover what's right for you and we'll go at your pace. That's the pace that respects your emotional needs, your boundaries, and your nervous system. Because going too fast can send you into shutdown, while going too slow can be infuriating. The goal is to find what's right for you. I work with clients who are motivated to explore many different areas of sexuality, including things like expressing your sexual desires to current or future partners, exploring if you might be queer, challenging body image insecurity in sexual relationships, dipping your toes into BDSM or consensual non-monogamy, learning to date after a long time out of the dating pool, exploring sexuality for later in life virgins, and so much more. I want you to have a deeply fulfilling intimate life and together, we can help you get there. For more information and to schedule your free, no obligation discovery call, visit leahcarry.com forward slash coaching. That's leahcarry.com forward slash coaching. I got approached all the time and like, you know, I one it was started to become a running joke. Like, do I have threesome written on my forehead or what? Because <laughs> people would just come up to me and like, they were always friends of mine, but they were like, I don't feel like I can ask anybody else, but you this. And would you like do this with me and my partner? And I was always kind of like, sure, why not? You know, <laughs> fast forward to BC time. And I'm like dating this couple and the, the wife was bisexual the husband I knew through work. And so he had approached me again about being the third in their threesome scenario. And I was kind of like, I mean, I I connected with the husband on like a person level. Like he was kind of a hippie dude and we had a lot of like spirituality things in common, but I didn't really find him that attractive. And so I was kind of like, I don't know about this. And he was like, well, let us take you out to dinner and, and see how you feel about it. And then we had a great dinner and his wife was smoking hot and she was this European like masseuse (laughs) and, you know, like total cliche, but like real life person. So then they were like, Hey, can we invite you back to our place for like a massage and like no pressure, like nothing needs to happen. We literally just want to give you like a nice massage. And I was like, fuck yeah, I'll do that. (laughs) So I came over to their place and still to this day, it's one of the most erotic memories of my life. Mm -hmm. The two of them massaging me together, having two sets of hands on me and not knowing whose hands were whose. Mm -hmm. And like, it was and they were giving me a proper massage too. They weren't just like trying to grope me or, or anything. They weren't doing anything inappropriate. And it got me so revved up. I was like, let's go, let's do this. Flip me over, you know? <laughs> and they were like, okay, you know, you're the boss. And so from then on out, we had this like sort of triad going on, but they wanted to uh, like date me in public And I was not ready for that at the time. Mm -hmm. I was super self-conscious about being seen in public with them as a triad. I really like, they wanted to take me on trips and stuff. And, and yeah. And I, that's pretty progressive. Yeah. And I was like, I can't, I'm, I'm way too concerned about like who might see me. And then the husband started getting kind of weird with me and I just backed out because mm-hmm. uh, I thought I, I'm here for your wife. Like I wouldn't be here if it wasn't mm-hmm. for your wife being bisexual. So I felt like my primary relationship should have been with her. And um, when it started to be more like I felt like I didn't have as much of a connection with her and he was really sending me dick pics and being all too much, I was like, okay, I gotta, I gotta cut this off. So yeah. I, I shut that down. So let's talk sex work. Okay, great. I love <laughs> talking get in- about sex work. <laughs> How'd you get into it? So I was in financial crisis. I was behind on bills and rent and all sorts of things. And I was really, really struggling uh, financially. And, and how old were you at this point? I was, let me think. My son was like a year and a half-ish, almost two 
So I would have been 29. Okay. I think 29 or 30. And, um, I didn't know what else to do. Now, let me preface this really quickly. Um, cause I, I didn't realize at the time that I'd actually dipped my toe into lighter levels of sex work before that I let one of my exes continue to have sex with me to pay for like trips I wanted to go on. Mm. Or um, I was having an affair with this married man, not my proudest moment. And I don't do that anymore for all of you who are like horrified right now. But I was in this unfortunate relationship with a married man. And he was very, he was, I was involved in a network marketing company and he was uh, in the upper echelons of this company. And he, so I knew he had money. He had a family though, too. And I remember he wanted to come over and I didn't really want to see him, but I thought, well, I'll let him come over and I'll have sex with him and then I'll ask him for money. Mm. And I did that and I had sex with him, even though I didn't really want to. And then I was like, you know, I'm really having a hard time. Like I could really use some help. And he was like, oh, I wish I could help you but like, I can't. And I was, I was pissed. I was so mad. And, um, and I thought to myself, you know, if I'm willing to do that, what is the difference Mm -hmm. between what I just did and like sex work? Nothing. Mm -hmm. So that flipped a switch with me. Um, and so I decided, okay, I'm going to do this because I, I don't know what else to do. So I went on to Craigslist and I found an ad for a massage parlor that was downtown Vancouver that does not exist anymore. And I went in for an interview and I started working there like right away. You know, I made a buttload of money and I paid off all my debts like within a week or something like really Mm. quickly. And then I was hooked and that was that. And what was the emotional transition for you? Like uh, going into sex work, were there any hangups for you about like, this is bad, this is wrong. Or were you just like this? Totally big time, especially because of my religious conservative upbringing. Yeah. I had a lot of internal conflict about it. And like, I remember even just looking down at my kid on the bus and he was just this cute little toddler. And I remember just feeling like all this guilt and shame around what I was doing, just looking at his sweet little face. Mm -hmm. And so I started to withdraw from I've got a really, really strong network of friends um, that I consider family. I was withdrawing from all of them. I stopped answering phone calls. I stopped seeing my friends because I was so ashamed and I didn't want to lie. That's the other thing is I hated lying about it. It was so, so stressful. And um, it's still to this day, one of the things I hate the most about the industry. Mm-hmm. And I, and I do understand why it's necessary. It's a, it's unfortunately, it's a necessary evil for a lot of sex workers to have to lie about what they do because of the shame and the stigma that surrounds it. And they don't want to jeopardize their kids or their job or their family or anything like that. And so, you know, the lying is a necessary evil, but I really wish that it wasn't that way. Mm -hmm. So I started getting really depressed and really secluded. And then I remember one day, a girlfriend of mine she came over and she walked through the door and I I had like verbal diarrhea, like just came out of me. I was, she was like, Oh my gosh, I haven't seen you in so long. And I was like, I'm so sorry. I've been, I gotta tell you something. I've I've been an escort and I just didn't want to tell you. And I, I I feel really bad, but like, I can't lie to you anymore. And I just like spit it all out. And she was like, Oh my God, that's, that's great. And I was like, what? (laughs) And she was like, this actually makes it so much easier for what I wanted to ask you. Cause then she wanted to ask me to be a threesome (laughs) for for her husband's birthday. And I was like, Oh my God, here we go again. Um, So, you know, and so it was hilarious and we laughed about it, but then she also, and then she told me like she had all of these secret desires to be a sex worker she she, and she never has been and she won't ever be she's married and everything now but um her mom had given her these like novels to try and like scare her off of sex and they were they had they had sex workers in them and it had the opposite effect on her (laughs) 
she, <laughs> she like romanticized it in a way. And she thought, Oh my gosh, this is so cool. Um, so she really like helped me switch, um, my mindset around it. And then she told me about this show called uh, secret diary of a call girl. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's is that the Jennifer Love Hewitt show. Oh, no, but okay. it, that's, I have things to say about that one. <laughs> okay. But there's good things and bad things about that show. Mm-hmm. But The Secret Diver Call Girl is based off of um, a true story off of a, a UK sex worker. I'm trying to think. Her name is Brooke Magnotti. Now she's out. She's fully out. She's a research scientist now. Hmm. Um, but she had started a blog about her escapades as a sex worker in Britain. And then it got turned into a book, which then got turned into these uh, TV shows. Mm-hmm. So Billy Piper is the star of that one. And so she told me about this show. She was like, Oh my gosh, you need to watch this like secret diary of a call girl show. And then that was the first time that I was introduced to the idea that it's okay to like your job and that some sex workers choose this work and that it can still be a healthy thing for you because the women I was surrounded by at my, my work did not talk like that. When you say your work, do you mean the massage parlor? The massage parlor. Yeah. The massage parlor. Um, They, most of them had very conflicted feelings about the fact that they worked and um, were not feeling good about it. So it it was a revelation for me to find out that there were other sex workers that felt okay, not just okay, that enjoyed their job Mm -hmm. and that chose to be there and that were there because it served them. Mm. From then on out, it was a game that was a game changer for me. So thank you, Billy Piper. And thank you, Brooke McNatty (laughs) for putting all of that content out into the world because I really started feeling much better about the fact that I was doing what I was doing. And then I started allowing more healing experiences to happen as well in my sessions. And um, I'll never forget one time I was, uh, I'd finished, finished a session with a gentleman and he was so heartfelt uh, in thanking me. And he, he was like, you really like you've, you've changed me, like you've saved me, like, and we only had an hour together and he was so genuine and I could feel, I could feel how different he was and that he was in a healthier place because we'd had that session together and I couldn't explain it at the time, but something inside me just, just clicked and said, you're exactly where you're supposed to be right now. Mm. And I knew that that wasn't going to be the be all end all. And that like, being a sex worker or being like an erotic masseuse wasn't my calling, but I had an overwhelming sense of certainty that this was exactly where I was supposed to be on. It was a stepping stone for me. I didn't know what that was going to lead to at all. I just knew without a shadow of a doubt that I was exactly where I was supposed to be. And this was the right place and the right time for me to be here. So I have several questions, um, but the first I want to say that I've told you this um, already that, and I think I've mentioned this here before, but I'm not sure. My journey of sexual healing started by visiting a sex worker. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I have tremendous gratitude and respect to people in this industry the sex worker that I went to was somebody who did tantric massage. And I, I know that I've talked about this, um, but the very act of touching someone's naked body in exchange for money, when there's any sort of sexual energy flowing that classifies someone as a sex worker, even when what they're doing is healing work. There is a, and you can speak to this more I'm sure than I can, but I think it's important to note that there are different um, there are different types of people who get involved in sex work. In that there are some like you who maybe get into it for the money, but who are doing it by choice, mm-hmm. who find it to be like a, a deeply fulfilling experience. And then there are people who get into sex work because uh, it's called survival sex work because. Mm-hmm 
that is the only thing that they have to do in order to keep food in their mouths and to maybe be able to pay rent or not even be able to pay rent, just like Mm -hmm. find places to stay. Um, And then there's coerced sex work, Mm -hmm. which is where somebody else sort of pushes you into that field. And those are, each of those has its own sort of, um, they're very different. And Mm -hmm. so um, I ache for people who our survival sex workers. Me too. And for coerced sex workers. Me too. Me too. I am incredibly grateful for people who choose sex work because it is for them a way to bring goodness into the world. Mm -hmm. Totally. I would love to see a shift in um, in that I would love to help sex workers who feel like they don't have any other skills or they don't know how to get out, but they want to, I would love to help them, you know, transition out of that. And I do, I volunteer off and on. I haven't been there so much lately, but with a society here in Vancouver called Pace Society, and it is an organization that is by, with, and for sex workers. Mm-hmm. And we do have a transitions program there. So if anyone ever wants help with transitioning out of sex work because they don't feel like it's serving them, you can go to PACE and get help with that. Because if you are not enjoying what you're doing and it's harming you, then you shouldn't be doing it. Mm-hmm. And I would love to see us help people get out who don't want to be in. And I would love people, I would love to help people get more comfortable with doing what they're doing if they want to stay in. And um, I would love to see more of a shift so that the people who enjoy doing it and who want to be doing it um, are doing it. Mm -hmm. And the ones who aren't can move on to something else that serves them better. Yeah. And I'm going to get up on my soapbox for just another minute. Sure. why I think sex work is so important. I mean, we, so our culture sexualizes women's bodies. Women's bodies are used to sell everything from watches to cars to hamburgers, sometimes hamburgers on cars. (laughs) (laughs) And all of that is thought of as completely normal. But as soon as a woman wants to start making money using her own body, then it becomes criminalized. Mm Mm-hmm. And I would like for all of us to start thinking of this as women taking ownership and responsibility for their own sexuality, being mm-hmm. being given the grace to use what God has given them for something that they feel is important. And I also think it's incredibly important. There are so many men in our society who are not getting their touch needs met. Totally. And sex workers are so important for helping to fill that gap. Because when we don't get our touch needs met, that that um, pain can metastasize into some really awful things. Totally. Um, and when it comes to... Uh, women going to sex workers, that is often a place as it was for me, where you can have an experience that feels safe, because it is monetized. And so you don't have to worry about your boundaries being crossed, you don't have to worry about getting involved in a relationship that you can't handle. There are so many things that can happen in a healing way for women who've been through trauma, when they choose to use a sex worker to work through that trauma. Totally, totally. And I would even recommend, um, because we haven't really gotten to this part yet, but I work as a surrogate partner now. And that's um, where we're going next. So please go. (laughs) Okay, okay. So I was gonna say you mentioned trauma. So I know, um, I personally know a few women who uh, have gone to see male surrogates to help them work through the trauma of like a rape, let's say. Mm -hmm. And um, well, many sex workers will be able to help you. Not everyone knows how to hold the space for you emotionally. And I also really recommend a therapist to be involved as well. So usually with the surrogate, definitely. Yeah. With the surrogate uh, relationship, you're usually also seeing a therapist, but you can only go so far talking and working through your trauma with just with talking. Yeah. 
because the trauma was with your body, that somatically gets uh, imprinted into your cells, into your cellular memory. And so when you are trying to be intimate again with another partner, even though you may be feeling really healed in your mind space with your trauma and with what happened to you, stuff still might come up when someone wants to touch you. And so that's where a surrogate can be really, really helpful because they know how to hold that space and walk you through unlearning those things with your body so that you can get back to a place of power with your own, uh, with your own pleasure. Yeah. So uh, can you explain, define what a surrogate is and what a surrogate does? Yeah. So a surrogate partner is somebody who acts, who it's, we're, it's a form of sex work, but we act as, um, a, as a partner for somebody who maybe does not have the ability to uh, have physical touch on their own, or I also help couples. Now I work specifically with people who have physical disabilities as a surrogate. And so um, the majority of the people that I, that I work with, well, actually, I shouldn't say the majority of the people because I also, in my private practice, deal with able-bodied people as well. So, um, but a lot of the times, it's people who are like late-in-life virgins, or they're people who have a physical disability that keeps them from being able to have partnered sex very often or very easily. Or sometimes I work with couples who just aren't able to access each other on their own, so I help them access each other using my bodies. What does that mean, access each other? So I'll, I move them so that they can access each other. So I'll put, I'll put the one partner on a bed and the other partner in a sling. And then, um, mm. or like, you know, I, I move the bed up and down or I'll actually move their bodies together so they can have intercourse or um, I get them set up in a position so that, mm. you know, they can do oral sex on each other and I leave the room. Wow. That's amazing. I never thought, I've only ever thought of, uh, of what you do in terms of like one person with a disability and a surrogate who is like helping them to have an experience that they don't normally get to have. But I never thought about two people with disabilities mm-hmm. who maybe have a hard time getting into those positions and having someone in the room to help them. That is mind-blowingly amazing (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah it's pretty cool um and so like that it doesn't happen as often but I definitely have helped some couples and the cool thing about that is that um you know through working with me and with my my coaching and my help they have learned how to do more things themselves so they don't need me as often which is the end goal Mm -hmm. so you know it's super great because you know their sex life was non-existent before and now they know how to uh how to get a few things done on their own even without me being there so that's that's the best possible case you know the best scenario I love hearing that So um let's can you sort of describe for us a scene you can like obviously use a real scene and change the names or whatever, but <laughs> like when you're uh, working one-on-one with a client with a disability, can you sort of describe maybe what that disability might be, what it would keep them from doing and how you maybe are able to interact with that person? Okay, sure. Um, so, I mean, it's, again, this is all going to be very dependent on, the person and what their mobility is like, but like, okay. So for instance, I'm going to think about one of my favorite clients. So he, he has cerebral palsy. So he needs a care aid to come to the appointment because I need help transferring him from his chair to the bed. I'm a really strong woman. Don't get me wrong, but um, it's just too much mm-hmm. uh, with with some of the the bigger gentlemen and stuff like that. So the carried will come, help me transfer him to the bed, and then take off until we tell him to come back. And then um, I ask the client what it is that they're hoping to accomplish that day. So maybe that day they're hoping to try penetration or maybe that day they're trying, they're hoping to learn about oral sex um, and like giving a partner pleasure. So then I'll walk them through coaching on that. So I'll let them use my body, but I'll give them feedback on what they're doing and pressure and don't use so much teeth and, you know, (laughs) whatever. Uh Um, Then depending on what the, depending, it depends on how accessible their 
their body is to me as well, whether or not we can actually have intercourse. So I have had some uh, cerebral palsy clients that just are too, I don't know what the word is, but they 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 can't lay flat mm-hmm. enough for me to access their their body to have proper intercourse. So um, I'll do massage, I'll do um, hand release, I'll do some oral sex with them. Always 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 using condoms and barriers, obviously. So I'll do a little bit of light kissing. I don't. It, it's that your mileage may vary with that. I'm I'm pretty private about sharing my face with people. But that makes sense that you would keep one thing that is especially like intimate for you. Yep, totally, yeah. totally. So kissing is extremely intimate for me, more so than sex by far. Does that answer your question? It really yeah. is like depends on what it is that they're hoping to work on. But like my whole goal is to get them get them to the experience that they want and hopefully have them feel really confident and feeling good about what it is that we're doing so that if they ever do have the chance to be with another partner, that they feel confident stepping into that with them, with somebody else. So with both the surrogacy that you do now and the sex work that you've done in the past, do you derive pleasure from it? Yes. This is a taboo thing for me to say. Okay. Um, Yes. (laughs) Like it's one thing to not hate it. It's a different thing to get actual sexual pleasure from it. For sure. For sure. Um, So I, this is kind of scary for me to say this on a podcast right now, because um, all of the women that I've ever worked with, well, I shouldn't say all of them, but the majority of the women that I've worked with very much looked down upon any sex worker who enjoyed their job. Mm. And I think that there's a couple of different reasons for that. I think that the main one is that the majority of the people that I knew that I worked alongside with were lying about the fact that they worked as a sex worker and most of them were in partnered relationships. Mm -hmm. So from a compartmentalization perspective, it makes sense to me that if they're not enjoying themselves at their job, it's not cheating. Uh And then they're saving themselves to have pleasure with their partner. Mm -hmm. So that seemed to be a really common theme. Um, But also I think that there's just a stigma within the industry around, you know, treating clients as humans. You know, most, most girls that I worked with were very derogatory in the change room towards clients and it made it easier for them to do the work. I think to think of them as like subhuman. Mm-hmm. Um, and I never enjoyed talking about them like that or thinking about them like that. But I also always approached my work with a really healing attitude. And that was sort of um, unusual compared to most people. So I'm of the mind that like I'm here anyways, I might as well enjoy myself if I can you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so I am definitely not shy about saying, Oh, you know, do it this way. It feels nicer like this. Oh, I like it like that. I wouldn't say that like I have orgasms frequently. Mm -hmm. I, I definitely do not, but it's not about me. It's about the client. Mm -hmm. So, um, and very, very often back when I was doing your run of the mill sex work or the escort work, clients would say that a lot and they would say, well, I really want to know what gets you off. I really want to know what you like. And I would always just kind of laugh and be like, well, this isn't about me. You know, this is about you. Um, Because the other thing you have to consider is like, you know, what if I've seen like five other clients that day? I'm tired. Like, you know, like just like, (laughs) you know, sometimes you just want to get it over with. Like, and so do you fake? Um, like, because they need you to have an orgasm? I've n- I have never faked a true orgasm. I've definitely, like, exaggerated, <laughs> for sure. Um, but, like, I always, it's it's easy for me to drop into, like, feeling good. And, and, and also, I feel like it's easier to connect with the person that you're with if you're enjoying yourself and they want you to enjoy yourself. So if they're mm-hmm. really looking for that, for sure, then you know, if I wasn't feeling it, I would definitely exaggerate it so that we could get things moving. Um, (laughs) but, um, no, I don't think I've ever like 
straight up faked an orgasm. Well, actually, back when I used to perform, like I used to do dancing for like bachelor parties and stuff, I definitely faked some orgasms then. But I was like getting uh-huh. fucked by a dildo with by my girlfriend in the middle of a group of <laughs> like 20 guys or whatever. Yeah, I faked those orgasms for sure. <laughs> uh-huh. Sure. Because <laughs> that was part of the right, show. Exactly. And like for me to actually sit there and try and get off was going to take way too long. So it's not, it's not <laughs> happening. Yeah. Huh. Um, do you feel safe as a sex worker, as a surrogate uh, under the current laws in Canada? Ooh, do I feel safe? Yes. Um, only because I live in a very sex positive province. And so um, we are very lucky in Vancouver that when they passed the Nordic model uh, in 2014, which for those of you who don't know, the Nordic model is a law that criminalizes the buying, but not the selling of sex. <laughs> which is asinine. Oh, I know. It's, it's insane. It's insane. <laughs> Um, so, you know, when that happened, VPD did release a public statement saying, as long as it's happening indoors and between consenting adults, like it's business as usual, we're not getting involved. So we don't have to worry too much about the legality of it here in Vancouver, but in other provinces like Alberta, let's say where it's a little bit more conservative, the police force does not have the same mind. So they are definitely doing stings and trying to catch Johns and talking about publicizing um, public databases of people's names and like Mm. all sorts of horrendous stuff. So um, do I feel safe personally? Yes, for sure. But I know that that's not always the case for people. And especially because I've always worked indoors. That's the other thing. Mm -hmm. Um, I I know a lot of women who have worked outdoors on the streets and um, it is not as safe by far to be doing car dates and to stand on a street corner. Um, most of the assaults and the horrible stories that I've heard happened to workers who were outdoors. So I'm lucky that way. Cause I've never been an outdoor worker. And one of the big problems, one of the many problems with the Nordic model is that it drives because they're outlying the Johns, or they're criminalizing the Johns, it drives the sort of quote unquote good Johns out of the marketplace, and you're left with the creeps and abusers. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. I have so much to say, but I'm going to let okay. it pass right now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, what do you have any red lines when you're working with clients, especially with the su- surrogate work? Are there any things that people ask you to do that you're like, uh, other than kissing, you've mentioned? Is there anything else? Um, I mean, like back when I was a traditional sex worker, my my spiel was always like, uh, I'm a very easygoing girl. I like to have fun, but just a few things. Don't touch my face. No fingers inside my body and everything with a condom. And they were like, yeah, okay. You know, and like if, uh, if putting fingers inside my body was like absolutely a dear, a a deal breaker for them, then I would just have them put a condom on their fingers. But I don't typically enjoy a lot of hands on my, on my vulva, or at least I didn't back then when I was working because it was just too many paws, too many, too many Mm -hmm. fingers down there. Um, was just not enjoyable for me. Um, So that's actually been an interesting thing for me to overcome again in my personal life, because that was such a hard and fast line for me while I was working, that I stopped like enjoying it. And I had to relearn how to enjoy it in my personal life, because it was I never allowed it to happen at work. And you have a son. What do you hope that his relationship with sex will be as he grows older? Oh, my gosh. I have, (laughs) I hope it's healthy. Um, I've had like these 
terrible visions of him like becoming a porn star or something like <laughs> what just watched like this i'm gonna create this monster right um who's like this hypersexual like you know being um but i i hope that he feels comfortable to express himself sexually and to discuss sex and sexuality with with his friends with his partners with me and and that's what i hope for him i hope that he feels supported and happy and healthy in his sex life. That's all that I want for him. So whatever that looks like, what and you know whatever he turns out to be in terms of orientation does not matter to me. Um, as long as he's as long as he's happy, healthy, and fulfilled, then I will be satisfied. Awesome, Joss, we've done it. <laughs> Great. We scheduled a long time, and we went even longer than that. <laughs> so funny oh my gosh this is great well I really appreciate you having me on your show because I think what you're doing is so important Leah like my whole mission has been to help people get more comfortable talking about sex and you're doing exactly that so normalizing sex and I I just want to acknowledge you for also respecting and supporting sex workers because there are a lot of sex educators who don't and I really love and appreciate you for that because you understand how we are or how we can be a social service helping and healing people. And I think that that's a piece that really gets missed when sex work is discussed. So I just want to thank you for that, for your support with that. Thank you for saying that. And uh, thank you for the work that you're doing. I think it's so incredibly important. Awesome. Josh, thank you so much. I love you. I love you too. (laughs) Thank you for having me on your show. That's it for today. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Or if you're using another podcast app, go to ratethispodcast.com forward slash goodgirls. And remember, there's a treasure trove of audio extras available for free at Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash goodgirlstalkaboutsex. While listening to those extras is free, producing this show is not. If my work is meaningful to you, and you have a few dollars to support it each month, I will gratefully accept your patronage at Patreon. I donate 10% of all Patreon proceeds to ARC Southeast, an organization that supports women in the Southeast United States to access reproductive services that are increasingly difficult to obtain. Find out more and become a community member at patreon.com forward slash goodgirlstalkaboutsex. Show notes and transcripts for this episode are at goodgirlstalk.com. Follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Good Girls Talk for more sex-positive content. If you have a question or comment about anything you've heard on the show, call and leave a message at 720-GOOD-SEX. Good Girls Talk About Sex is produced by me, Leah Carey, and edited by Gretchen Kilby. I have additional administrative support from Lara O'Connor and Maria Franco. Transcripts are produced by Jan Osiello. Before we go, I want to remind you that the things you may have heard about your sexuality aren't true. You are worthy. You are desirable. You are not broken. As your sex and intimacy coach, I will guide you in embracing the sexuality that is innately yours, no matter what it looks like. To set up your free discovery call, go to leahcarry.com forward slash coaching. Until next time, here's to your better sex life. <laughs>